This edition of The Standard is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharma Dean Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm David Marsland and this is The Leader. <laughs> Epsom Racecourses used to crowds, but not like this. The venue's been reopened as one of seven COVID vaccine mega centres in England. It's part of the government's efforts to get the jab out quickly. But it's not quick enough. Across the country, one in 50 are thought to have coronavirus. In London, it's now one in 20. And the Chief Medical Officer, Chris Whitty, says it's going to get worse. The next few weeks are going to be uh, the worst weeks of this pandemic in terms of numbers into the NHS. Uh, what we need to do before the vaccines have had their effect, because it's going to take several weeks before that happens, is we need to really double down. This is everybody's problem. Any single unnecessary contact you have with someone uh, is a potential link in a chain of transmission that will lead to a vulnerable person. Joining me now is the NHS campaigner and Lewisham GP, Dr Louise Arvin. So the Chief Medical Officer says the NHS is facing its worst weeks, Louise. Does it feel like that? Yes, it very much feels like that. Um, The other day we were trying to get an ambulance for a sick patient to get him taken to hospital and they told us that the response time was at least five hours. And that was for an urgent case that we were worried about. Um, When we spoke to the ambulance control centre, this is London Ambulance, they said that they are completely overwhelmed. Um, We were told, can you get one of their relatives to drive them to hospital? Now, not everyone's got friends or relatives who've got a car. That was horrible. Also, I've got some of my some of my um, fellow GPs are helping out by doing extra shifts at the local A&E at the moment. And they're just describing it as absolutely horrendous with patients sort of, you know, two to a cubicle with people it, it, sitting in chairs because there's no beds with intravenous drips and everything up because there's nowhere for them to lie down on. Um, and have people packed into wards and all over the place. So they, they said it's really stressful there for the staff. So on, on all, so whether it's primary care, that's, that's me, or whether it's the ambulance service or whether it's the hospital service, it, everyone's feeling the pressure here in London. And I imagine it's similar across the country. How are you feeling right now, Louise? Can you take more intense few weeks of this? I feel, I mean, okay, so I had a very p- bad personal experience with COVID. My father died of COVID and my mother was and my husband were both in hospital with it. And my husband nearly had to be ventilated, but luckily he didn't. He turned around and he, he's, he's been fine since then. And so is my mum, who's 95. She's fine. But it was quite an intense few weeks then. 
Um, and at that time I wasn't working, I was on a sabbatical. So and I came back to work and I heard all the tales from my colleagues about how awful the first wave was. And now this is worse than the first time with more cases, more hospital admissions, more people in ICU and more deaths. And I alternate between feelings of despair sometimes and then feelings of hope. And I see how hard everybody's working and how dedicated they are. This second lockdown wasn't necessary if the whole uh, COVID epidemic had been used, had been managed properly by the government in the first place. It's consistently done far too little, far too late. And we are in a situation where if we'd used the summer when it was really, the numbers had got really quite low because the first lockdown had been pretty effective. And if we'd had effective test, trace, isolate and support, we could have actually got a sort of, you know, zero COVID situation or really minimized it. And we opened up far too quickly, opened uh, in the summer, encouraged people to mix in pubs and, and restaurants had a very ineffective, and it's still very ineffective, test, trace, isolate and support system. And we're just, you know, this was predicted, this current crisis was predicted in the summer. So yeah, I'm very angry about that. Um, there's no satisfaction in saying I told you so. The only value in saying I told you so is, is for lessons to be learned now. You've already started giving some of your patients the vaccine. Can you get it out quick enough? Well, we're really organised now. One of the problems was that we were ready to give them, start giving it the previous week, but then the supply, the supplies are pretty uncertain when they're arriving and we had to then cancel various things and then rebook. So when we started, the first time we started was Friday and I helped out on Saturday and it went really, really, really smoothly. Now that we've got a system and we know what we're doing and we were really, you know, got very slick at it, I think it went exceptionally well. So I think, do we have the resources to do 2 million a week? I think we do, as long as we can be guaranteed supplies and as long as, long as we can be given the support that we need. You know, we have to employ, well, employ is the wrong word, we've got a lot of volunteer staff. You need volunteers to actually help to shepherd people in and out, and maintain social distancing, support, um, you know, older people who maybe. Um, haven't got very good mobility, etc. So there's a huge effort from the community. Lots of people have volunteered to help. But um, I, I just think we should be making sure that the government gives us the, the support it needs to be able to do it. There are these mega centres opening up, including one in London at the XL Centre. Are they going to make a difference? Once again, it sounds like the government's done the same thing as it did before, set up a completely parallel system that isn't linking in or relating with the existing system. So what, what I've heard is that these mega centres have um, just sent invitations to everybody over 80 in their area or everybody over 80 who hasn't had a vaccine so far. But that includes people who already had GP appointments to go to their local practice to get it. So, of course, they're confused now. Do I go to this place, which is 30 miles away? Do I still go to my GP? Has it all changed? So, of course, then they're phoning up the GP to find out what's going on. And that's creating a, a great big extra workload. So, Again, I would just ask that this government, we should situate vaccination in primary care, in the local NHS, we're capable of doing it, and that the mega centres, which are helpful too, should be coordinating properly with the existing um, teams that are doing this. There's no reason why they couldn't have sent invitations to people um, who hadn't already got invitations, for example, if there was proper coordination. What about 
further restrictions, tougher fines for people breaking lockdown. Is that the sort of thing that will help get through this pandemic? I don't think so. I just read a very interesting article today in the British Medical Journal, which did some research on how well people are um, complying with the lockdown rules. And I was very um, pleasantly surprised. More than 90% of people are adhering to restrictions. More than 85% of the public endorse the January lockdown and 77% think it should have happened sooner. I think on the whole, we're seeing a lot of compliance with these rules, because I think the majority of the population do do understand what's needed, and, and that that's very gratifying. I think uh, punishing people is not the answer. The answer is supporting and encouraging people with clear messages, so they understand what they should and shouldn't do, and also to support people who have to stay off work because either they've got COVID or they've been in contact with someone with COVID, and that's where the problem lies. Only about 20% of people are actually staying self-isolating in, in those circumstances. And I think the research suggests it's people mainly of um, lower income, people on a lower income who don't get um, either paid if they don't work or would have to rely on um, statutory sick pay, which is very little, and many won't even um, get that. So I would really urge this government to properly uh, give proper financial support to people who have to self-isolate. And I think that would bring the numbers right up because there's no point in testing people. There's no point in having this massive testing system across the country. If once somebody gets a positive test, nothing happens, you know, that they, they don't isolate. The whole point is to stop them trans- transferring to somebody else. We have more on this story in the Evening Standard newspaper and online at standard.co.uk, including an exclusive column by Tony Blair claiming that why saying we're doing our best against COVID isn't good enough. We have an ad break coming up now. Why not take this pause to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast provider? Then you'll get our news analysis and commentary every day at 4pm. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, this came out last night. And just like that. And that was it, but... Just like that, social media was swarming with excitement for the return of the Sex and the City gang. HBO Max has revealed 10 episodes of a follow-up to the hit series are in production called And Just Like That. It'll feature Sarah Jessica Parker, Cynthia Nixon and Kristen Davis as Carrie, Miranda and Charlotte, but not Kim Cattrall. The Evening Standard's Lizzie Edmonds is with me. Lizzie, is it really Sex and the City without Samantha? Wow, that's a very interesting question. I mean, obviously, long-running fans of the show will remember it was all about the four characters, and and now it has been confirmed by the stars, including Sarah Jessica Parker, who plays the lead, Carrie Bradshaw, that Samantha Jones, Kim Cattrall's character, will not be returning for the 2021 reboot. I'm quite intrigued to see how on earth they're going to get around the fact that she's not in it. And obviously, uh, writers of series have... um, 
have options when it comes to characters not coming back, you know, um, and I don't know what will happen, whether she'll be, you know, mysteriously working somewhere else or I don't know. It'll be intriguing to see what they do. Certainly will be. And, and this is all because of allegedly some row between Kim Cattrall and the Sarah Jessica Parker, which I believe Sarah has, has always denied. Yes, yeah, so... It was about three years ago that the rumours about Kim Cattrall and Sarah Jessica's working relationship started circulating, um, as well as with Cynthia Nixon, who plays Miranda, and Kirsten Davis, who plays Charlotte. So it was always kind of suggested that Kim Cattrall and the other three co-stars didn't get on that well. Um, Kim Cattrall gave an interview to Piers Morgan not that long afterwards, saying that they were colleagues and not friends, which, you know happens uh, not everyone can always get along and but that kind of fueled the fire a bit and then um when when Kim Cattrall's brother dies not that long ago um Sarah Jessica kind of reached out quite publicly to which um Kim Cattrall wasn't wasn't particularly pleased about that um so I think the fact that she's not going to be in this series kind of in my eyes seems to suggest that that is very much the truth so we know what we're not going to get. What do we know about the actual series so far? What's been released? Is, is it even going to be recorded in New York? Um, I believe so. I believe it's going to be a 10-parter. It's going to be about the women, the three women, and their relationships and, and their lives now that they will be in their 50s. Um, so the last time we saw them was with the <laughs> widely panned uh, second movie. Filming is expected to start in, in spring, um, and I would assume it would be in, in New York because Sex and City is, is so much about the city as well, um, as, the, as the title suggests. So... But obviously the pandemic doesn't seem to be giving much. Um, it just, just seems to be raging on throughout the world. So I don't know how, how they'll do it or, you know, what restrictions they'll have to adhere to. And that's Alina. Come back tomorrow afternoon at 4pm. <laughs>